Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. We're reading out the New King James Version. The verses will be up on the screen, but let's read this. Matthew 7, Jesus speaking, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says this. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. He says, Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he'll give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Jesus says, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for this opportunity to be reminded of who you are as our dad, us as your kids. Thank you, Jesus, for these promises that you've made thinking about that song we were singing, how it doesn't matter what we feel or or anything. What matters most is what you've promised to us. And so today we pray that you would give us faith in your promises. I pray, God, you would enable me to communicate your heart, fill me with your spirit in this moment. Um, Holy Spirit, we just want to invite you to say whatever you want, to speak to us. We ask you to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. So chapter 3, or it's chapter 7, but the third chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, we've made our way pretty far through this. It's been about three months, and at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we've observed Jesus speaking about and into a variety of different things. Jesus is giving a master class here in the Sermon on the Mount in regards to how to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God, and he's covered so many Topics. He's covered how to treat your neighbor to how to love your enemy, which can sometimes, in some cases, be the same thing. He's taught, he's taught how to overcome lust, how to eradicate anger. He's taught on how to give, how to pray, how to fast in a way that actually honors God and is spiritually productive. He's even taught on how to be blessed. That's in the Beatitudes. Up until this point, for the most part, Jesus' teaching has been very practically focused. It's been a lot of how-tos, insights on imperatives, how we are to live out the Christian life. Yet here, in the verses that we just read, it seems like Jesus takes a different tone. He moves from just describing the Christian life to now seeking to do something a little bit different. He wants to shape our expectations. Jesus is seeking to shape what we expect from God. How many of us know that it's so important in our Christian life to not just be consumed with what we do, but it's, it's, so, it's vitally important to look at what do I genuinely believe about God? What's true in my heart about him? Which, we'll find this, right? That that actually is the source of everything else that I do how I live, how I navigate. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's wanting to shape what we expect about God, and he's shaping that by making some promises. 
He, he makes some pretty bold promises here in this passage about what we can expect from God. And you saw them there. There were three specific promises. He promises that if we ask, we will receive. He promises that if we seek, we will find. And he promises if we knock, it will be opened to us. These are the three things that Jesus promises about God. And I want to just start with a few observations about these promises for us to understand what Jesus is getting at. There, there's three things that I think define these promises. Uh, these promises are each personal, they are paternal, and they are practical. Okay? And I know those alliterate very well. I worked really hard on that alliteration. Okay? But they are truly, though, personal, paternal, and practical. The first thing is these promises that Jesus makes here about God are personal. And this is an important distinction. The idea is that they apply and they should be personalized by you and me. There are general promises in, in, in Scripture as well. Corporate truths, things like when two or more are gathered together, not online, right? He is there in the midst of them, okay? That's kind of a joke. All right, he was definitely with us online too. But you get there's these corporate promises, just truths about who God is and how faithful he is. But this is a unique section of promises. These promises are very personal. He says, ask and you shall receive. It's so important when we're coming across passages like this that we don't just read it and theorize it and understand it to be true as an idea, but that we personalize it. We think about this for my own life. I mean, if we're not personalizing the word of Jesus, what are we doing? That's what this is all about. This is the truth of, of how God's word applies to your and my life. So it's personal promises that you can personally tank to the bank and apply to your life. They're paternal promises. Webster's Dictionary defines paternal as of or relating to a relationship with your father. And memorize that definition. That's how I knew it. Okay. That's what it means, paternal. And these are paternal promises. These promises that Jesus is making, how many of us know every promise has a basis? Right? And usually the basis is who's promising. Sometimes it's not, it's not so much how outrageous is the promise. It's who's promising it. What, what's the character, the trustworthiness of the word of the person? of the life of the person. And that's, that's what Jesus gets at here in this passage. As he makes these promises, he shows us that the basis of these truths are the fatherhood of God. It's who God is as a father. This is so important. Jesus is teaching here about who God is as a father and what his heart is towards his kids. Those are the basis of the promises. These are fatherly promises. Another way to think about this is Jesus is teaching about the implications of having God as your dad which is a pretty cool thing to think about. How many of us know that the role of dad is a big role? Okay, who's your daddy? It's a big deal, okay? Who your dad is has, come on, has major, the role of a father has, a, has major implications for the trajectory of your life based on the, and that can go either way. Uh, that's why, man, we constantly want to affirm the role of a dad here at Solace Church, also the role of a mom, but where the dad goes, the family goes, there are major implications in regards to who your dad is. So think about this. What are the implications of God being your father? And let's remember that when we talk about that, that's not just some like another one of Scripture's metaphors. That's a real truth. Like Scripture declares that we, through Christ, have become sons and daughters of the living God. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to actually be sons and daughters of God. Children of the living God. The scriptures say in Romans 8 that we did not receive through Jesus the spirit of fear, but we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. 
That's the language of Scripture to describe the paternal nature of our relationship with God. And we see Jesus getting at that, doesn't he? He's, He's talking about these promises, and he's like, man, think about just your earthly father. Even your earthly father, who is as good as he is, he's fallen. He's, he's a broken sinner. He calls him evil, the nature of humanity. We're broken. And he says even an earthly broken father knows how to give good gifts to his kids, knows how to be a, a decent basic provider. If that's true of the best sinner among us, how much more, he says, of a heavenly father. There's a quote I read recently by a, a pastor named Bruce Frank, and he said this in, in regards to this passage. He said, in this passage, what Jesus is reminding us of is that God is not the reflection of our earthly father. He is instead the perfection of a good, good father. Don't we sing that? God is not some reflection of the best dad you've had here on earth. No, if anything, that's a reflection of what God's the perfection of. You with me? God is a perfect, heavenly Father, and that's the basis of these promises, what that looks like to belong to him as his child. Lastly, they're practical promises. They're, they're personal for his actual kids, you and I. They are paternal. They have the basis of him being a dad to us, and they are practical. This is really important. Each of these promises, can you throw them up again, uh, Mike? Each of these promises are attached to practices. So there's, a, there's three promises, right? A promise to receive. There's a promise to find. There's a promise for a door to be opened, but there's also a calling for you and I to ask. You see that? There's a calling for you and I to seek. There's a calling for us to knock. These are are promises that are only experienced through practice. They're not meant to be merely acknowledged, like I know the promises of God. No, they're meant to be acted upon and experienced. In fact, that's the only way they can become true in our lives. If we ask, if we seek, if we knock. So that's the nature of these Three promises. Ask and receive, seek and you find, knock and it will be open to you. Uh, for our time remaining, let's actually unpack each of these. I want us to look at um, what these could actually look like in our lives personally. I spent some time uh, searching the scriptures and one of the things I was just asking God to, 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 to lead me in is just what do these themes represent? Like each of these have a theme to them. And so as we went through scripture, I want to kind of look at a couple things that these promises, these things that Jesus promises about God, what they could mean for us. Let's start with the first one, okay? Uh, So point number one, if you're taking notes, ask and receive. Let's talk about this one. Um, This idea of asking and receiving with God as our father, it can signify a promise of God's loving provision. We'll start there. A promise of God's loving provision. We even get that example when Jesus illustrates a kid needing bread or or needing a fish. It's it's basic needs. It's it's a father providing his need, the needs for his kids. And, And it's to this promise of loving provision that Jesus says, if you ask, you will get what you need. Now, that's going to need some unpacking, isn't it? Because isn't like step one to being a good parent not giving your kid everything they ask for? Like I'd probably be in jail by now if I let Evie drive my car, you know, as she's asked before. Or last night we were, we were on the, I was doing a little cooking out on the grill. And Evie's like, Daddy, can I use the grill? Can I do the And I'm like, no, honey. Imagine if I said, ask and you shall grill, you know? Like, come on. That would be horrible. So, so what is God getting at here? Does this mean that, that whatever it is we come before God, whatever it is our desires now, there's some clarity to this. 
There's some clarity to this. In fact, James talks about how we ask and we don't uh, receive because what we're asking is not according to the will of God, but it's our own. It's for our own pleasures. So God, I, I, you ask and you shall receive. God, may I win the lottery. God, may they fall in love with me. Okay. Like, by the way, it's okay to pray big prayers. But I think the nature of this is, is, is so much more than just gaining material things, as James says, to just spend on our pleasures. There's a part of the Lord's Prayer that says, God, give us this day our daily bread. That's okay. It's okay to pray for your material needs to be met. But notice what Jesus says there in verse 11. He, he describes the things that, that we should ask God as good gifts. He says good gifts. The Father wants to give good gifts to his kids. The idea here is this, that there are certain things that go way beyond material things. There are certain key, valuable, important things that you and I desperately need. We might not realize it, but God knows what we need even before we ask. And he looks down on our lives and there are things, we'll say this, spiritual things that go beyond what any material thing can give us, that God knows we need in life. And here's the, the, the issue. We can't attain it on our own. We don't have in and of ourselves the ability to just get and achieve that thing that we need. He says, you've got to come and you've got to ask me for it. Let me give you some examples of this. Have you ever faced your own personal need for, let's start with wisdom? You ever been there? You ever been in desperate need of discernment? You're in a situation, and it's not like a right or wrong issue. It's more like a right or left. You know what I'm saying? It's like, which way should I go? Shall I stay or shall I go now? Like, what do I do? It's that, ex it's that experience of, God, I need the dividing sword, of a discerning sword of your wisdom. I'm lacking it. I need it. I can't attain it on my own. What about peace? God, I need peace right now, a peace that surpasses all understanding, and in and of myself, I don't have it. What about strength? God, I've come to the end of my own power, my own will, my own, my own strength. The strength of my flesh has only gotten me so far. I need your strength. What about forgiveness? God, I'm having a hard time overcoming this offense. I'm having a hard time showing forgiveness. I need forgiveness. What about love? I know how God's called me to love my neighbor, and I know that it's got to come from him because it's not within me. How about this? How about just his spirit? You ever felt, God, I need your spirit. You ever been so full of you that you're sick of you? You ever been there? Just me? Just Brittany of me? No, I'm just kidding. All right. Come on, we've all been there. God, I, I just, I'm so tired of life in the flesh. I need, I was talking to a brother about this earlier, I need just refreshment from your spirit. See, these, this is what we're talking about here. There are certain things in life like such that we desperately need, that we cannot attain on our own. God says instead, come to me and ask. You've got to ask. In fact, James says, uh, watch throw that reference up, Mike. James says that the reason why we don't have, it's the book of James, he says it's because we don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask. And, and this is often where we find ourselves. It's not that, it's not that we don't know that God has what we need. It's that we hate asking. Like, I got I to gotta actually come to him. I got to actually be dependent on him. And isn't that the thing that we're fighting? We're fighting that independent nature that we all are prone to have. We're privy to that, that kind of self-sustaining, self-strengthening life mode. Rather than saying, God, I need you. You know, 
Independence is really an illusion, right? This idea that I, I can get, you know, as if like I put my life here in the first place. I created this world that's sustaining my life. It's a big illusion, but it's such a tendency. I mean, how many of you guys would be honest and you'd say that you struggle with independence? Like how many of you guys struggle with asking for help? Anybody? Okay. I can think of a couple uh, years ago, maybe three or four years ago. Um, every time I, I'm horrible at time. I'll be like, oh, it was three years ago. And Brittany would be like, no, that was 10 years ago. I always do that. Um, but I, when did we go to Asheville, North Carolina? That must have been, Judah was like one, so it must have been six years ago. See, I just said three years ago, okay? She said, we were starting a church three years ago. Um, so six years ago, we were up in Asheville, North Carolina, visiting a family friend, and we all went uh, to, to go to this place called Looking Glass Falls, a beautiful spot there in the Blue Ridge Canyon Mountains. And uh, as we were on our way there, we got to this point in the mountain along the path. It was me, Brad, and the, the kids in our car. And there was another caravan of our family that we were going to meet each other there. And one got a head start. So we're like, okay, we'll just meet you there. But we found out that there's a certain point that you get to in America, certain places in these places called mountains, where Siri can't help you. There's n you can call all day long and she will not answer you, okay? She's just, she's done. She's sleeping or something, but she's not going to answer you. And so we got to this point where there was no cell service. And I, being the dad that I am, and the ma I'm just like, I'll find this place. I'm going to do this. Now, there was like an ice cream stop at the beach. Brittany's like shaking her head. She remembers it, okay? We had to roll the windows down because the kids, like just from the mountains, were getting all nauseous. Like, oh, dad, are we there yet? And so I, what I ended up doing was, because I was so stubborn and unwilling to ask for help and ask for directions, I ended up driving us like three miles up the backside of this mountain to nowhere. And then we just ended up coming right back down, and I found out that the turn I made, if I would have just gone straight, it was two hundred yards ahead on the right-hand side. So how are you feeling right now? Anxious? I feel, I feel it too. I'm sorry. But, but you know, uh, all because of my stubbornness to be dependent on the help that I needed. And man, that's probably one of the main things that can keep us sometimes. God, I know I need wisdom, but God, keep me from that tendency to try to do this on my own. I'm going to come to you. I know I don't have because I'm not asking. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to implore. I'm going to ask you to give me the wisdom, the peace, the strength that I need. Isn't it James chapter 1 where James says, anybody among you lacking wisdom, just ask of God. He'll give to all liberally and without reproach. You know, another thing I thought about with this is it's not just that we have this stubbornness sometimes where we don't like to ask for help and assistance, but there's also this, this part of us to where we don't like to receive either. I think our culture is so driven by personal achievement. And so where Jesus says, ask and receive, we say, no, 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 work and achieve. So if I need all these things, God surely wants me to pull myself up by the bootstraps and earn my way into his good gifts. And what a cruel father he would be if that were the case. I'm only going to give you what you need when you've earned it? No, no, no. The heart of God is, listen, just ask and receive. There, there's not a single thing you have to work for here. I've paid it all. I've done all the work. Is this not a great picture of what the gospel is? Such a tendency that we have to try to curry God's attention, earn our way into his favor and love and acceptance. And the gospel says, stop before you do a single thing, before you lift a single finger. Look at my son Jesus who did it all. And here's how you're going to be saved. You're going to receive. You're going to welcome Jesus like, like, like you would a guest into your home. You're not going to work and achieve. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. And to as many as received him, to them, he's given the right to be called children of God. This is how the kingdom of God works. 
God is not looking for people who are, who, who are hitting the mark of achievement. He's looking for hearts that are just willing to receive what he wants to give. Willing to receive that. So, man, what a promise. Ask, come, have the humility to come to me, have the humility to actually receive what I want to give you, and you will receive. What a great promise. Here's the promise. Each and every time that we reach out to God in need, he is faithful to respond with the supply that we need. He's faithful to bless. He's faithful to give. Uh, we see this reiterated in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Can I say, God's will for your life is your wisdom. God's will for your life is your peace. God's will for your life is to forgive. And so God doesn't call us to these things like, a, you know, like dangling a carrot in front of us, having us kind of frivolously chase something in vain. God calls us to these things with the desire to actually supply them to us, to give them in our lives. And we know that he hears us when we come to him. I mean, what, isn't that hope in and of itself? Think about that. The God of the universe actually hears me when I call to him. He's not too busy. He doesn't have an appointment. He's not like an earthly father that has other engagements. He's not like, okay, I'll, I'll come back to you at 5 p.m. Are you ready around 5 p.m.? I'll be there. I can hear you then. We think about this. We have God's undivided attention. He's never distracted from us. A lot of, uh, of, of theologians who have studied revivals in the past uh, they, they found that this is one of the key marks of every great revival in history. This was uh, Charles Finney wrote about this uh, in his lectures on revivals of religion. Um, let's get academic here for a second. But he, in, in, in his book, Lectures on Revivals of Religion, Charles Finney said that there is one specific characteristic that every great revival in history has, and it's this. It's God's people praying with the certainty that God hears them. Praying with the certainty of being heard. There's something about prayer. There's something about worship that's not, when it's done as not just words to the ceiling. You know what I'm saying? There's something about coming to God with this confidence that he hears me. He cares for me. And Jesus says he responds to you. Ask and you shall receive. This is a good, good father, man. He, he, Jesus even says that God knows what we need even before we ask him. Isn't that cool? Like God knew you and I needed a savior before we even knew we had a thing called sin. So this is who he is. Uh, one more reference here that we'll close this point out with. It's Philippians chapter 4. Uh, what a great, great uh, reiteration of this promise. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. But what do we got to do? We got to ask. God, I need you to supply this. Amen? All right, let's look at the second one. Seek and find. Number two, seek and find. This is a promise of relational access. That's what this could signify. Jesus next says, if you seek, simply, you will find. And then he says it, I like how he like says it in the second verse. He says the same thing, but he yodas it. Everyone who seeks finds. I love that. I love that he does that, okay? But anyway, um, seek and find. Jesus is describing this, this second promise about God. And this promise is a promise of relational pursuit is the idea. That's what the word seek is. In Greek, the word seek very simply just means to find the location of something or someone. Uh, and, it's, and depending on uh, how valuable that thing is, you seek a little harder. Um, now, I, got, I have this problem with losing things. And my problem is not just that I lose things. My problem is how I find things. 
I go crazy, okay? Everything is wrong in the world when I've lost something. Like, I go into, like, this Hulk state where I don't even know what happened. I wake up. I'm like, what happened, you know? And it's like, Brittany's like, you lost your keys, okay? And look at the house now, all right? It's evident, all right? So um, it's kind of this passionate pursuit of finding something. That's the idea of this word seek. And in Scripture, it's a very relational term. So, so uh, the best place to start with this and understanding this is not just looking at how we're called to seek God. But I love Jesus in, in the Gospel of Luke. It describes this about Jesus. It says that Jesus is the Son of Man. He's come to seek and to save. Who's that? You and I. That which was lost. He tells these great parables about a lost coin. He talks about a shepherd who even leaves the 99 to go after the one sheep. It's the relational pursuit of God to rescue us, to save us, to find us. Uh, this is the story of not just uh, our lives individually. This is the story of history. God creates humanity for relationship. Humanity has this tendency to run and hide from God in sin and shame. But God is always seeking and pursuing man in love and grace not, not in condemnation, not in punishment, but it's this, this, really all of history is this big game of hide and seek with God. Man tends to run and hide and God is there seeking in love and grace. And there's often this fear like, what if God finds me? You know, think of Adam, right? Adam and Eve hiding and God going, where are you? And by the way, God wasn't saying that because he doesn't know where they are. He's saying that to let them know, you're hiding. Why are you hiding? He's always pursued in love and grace. And what a great example of this in Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is, hey, we're lost. We're in the Smoky Mountains or wherever I was, and you got to try to find your way back to God. No, the gospel is this. Before you ever thought to seek God, he was seeking you. Before you knew you were lost, God did, and he sent his son Jesus to save you, to find you. And God plays finders, keepers with what he finds. He keeps what he finds. He never loses what sin has lost. Now check this out on the flip side. That's how God seeks us. It's the gospel message. But then there's also this invitation for us to seek God. I think a great expression of this is found in the Psalms. It's David. Psalm 27, I believe. Is that right? Psalm 27, verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, your face, your face, Lord, I will seek. So, so there's also this reciprocal call where God says, I have sought you, and I'm not lost, but you are called to also seek me. It's, it's the reverse relational pursuit. It's the pursuit of the knowledge of God. What does it mean to seek God? The idea there is to search out in pursuit of a greater knowledge of God personally. You know, it's like saying, God, I'm not content with just knowing ideas about you. But I'm sensing and I am, I am responding to your pull which says, come know me. The way Moses knew God as a friend knows a friend face to face. The way Jesus knew the Father in those times of intimate prayer and intercession. That's what God calls us to. How many of us know this? The Christian life is not just meant to be an educational experience. It's meant to be an experience. It's meant to be something that we know, not just in theory, but in practice. God is a father who wants to be known by his kids. Like There are things that God wants to show you today that are new every day. 
we shouldn't settle for the things we've learned about him. Yeah, I've already learned that. No, God says, I want to open your eyes afresh. I want to draw you in. Seek me. Seek me. Now, here's the promise Jesus makes. If you seek, what? You'll find. What a promise. You know what that means? That means that God is in hiding. That means God is available to us. That means God is accessible to us. That at any moment when you seek God, he is there to be found by you. This is a reiteration of Jeremiah 29. Remember this in Jeremiah 29, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I'm there to be found by you. I'm there to be known by you. We haven't been saved to know things about God. We've been saved for the privilege of knowing the living God. And that's amazing. Uh, what a great promise. And I want to say this, that when it comes to this, you, you see this principle in Scripture that um, all human success depends on this. And when I say success, I don't mean like prosperous financial success, all right? I mean, you making the impact that God has called you to. I mean, your marriage mattering for what God wants it to. I mean, for your legacy to go on past your life. I mean, for your life to be fruitful and for it to flourish, for your kids to flourish, for generations to be impacted. I mean, in order to live an impactful life, we must be those who seek God. It's everything. We have a great example of this in a, in a king in the Old Testament named King Uzziah. It's 2 Chronicles 26. Uh, king Uzziah was 16, let me say that again, 16 years old, barely a sophomore or junior in high school, I think a sophomore. I was like 18 in ninth grade, so it doesn't work out for me when I try to think about this, but, but King Uzziah was 16 years old when this dude became king. Imagine him on the ticket, I might vote for him, okay? But he sought God, notice this, in the days of Zechariah, it said he had understanding in the visions of God. That's cool. Not sure what that means, but that's awesome, right? He had understanding in the visions of God. He understood things that God would reveal. And check this out. This is so huge. Notice this. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. And this isn't just true with King Uzziah. This is true with the whole nation of Israel and the history of God's people. As long as God's people have Jesus as their priority and knowing God as their pursuit, things go well. Not just circumstantially, okay? That's not what that word prosper means. Like, if you seek the Lord, you will win the lottery. You will get that promotion. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. In the lives of those who prioritize seeking God. How many of you have experienced this to be true? How many of you guys have found how, how starved your soul could be and how kind of halfway your life can be when you're not seeking God? I know this. And Jesus told us this last week in chapter 6. He said, seek first the kingdom. Pursue a greater knowledge of me. That's what we've been saved to do, to know the living God. And again, it's all based on this promise that he's available to be known by us. That's what Christianity is, man. It's a relationship with the living God. Thirdly, let's close with this last one. Last promise is knock, and it will be opened. All right? And we'll signify this promise as a promise, we see in Scripture that open doors, do you ever heard that expression? It's often a promise or a symbol of divine favor, divine favor. Uh, so, so the idea would be, if I'm knocking, if I'm knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, okay, in prayer, Bob Dylan, if I'm doing that, 
okay? I'm 32, you know, so I got like, I got my mom's generation of music, but I also, I know who Takashi 69 is, you know, or whoever. Okay, I got it all. I'm connected, all right? So, sorry, don't look him up. Um, but, but the idea is you knock, and it will be open. The idea there is imploring God's favor. It's saying, God, I need you. God, I'm knocking on your door. I'm looking to your favor. God, I know that only you can give me access to this next step. You know, my, my daughter, Penny, she's two years old, and one of her favorite things to do is to, I mentioned losing my keys, and there's a parallel here because she loves to take my keys. And one of her favorite things to do, it's so cute because she has no hope, but she loves going up to the door and just like scratching the door with the keys is like her way of unlocking it, like just like ruining the door. I got to paint that thing. But there's, so and you just kind of watch her and no matter how hard she tries, there's no way she's getting through. The only way is if I step in and I take the keys from her and I open the door for her. I give her access. That's the idea here. That's divine favor. It's God getting you where you can't get on your own. There's a great example of this in the gospel of Luke. Listen to this. It's called the parable of the persistent neighbor. And this is just like humorous comedy, powerful Jesus at its best. Check this out. Jesus tells this parable about actually knocking on doors and and then being opened. In Luke uh, chapter 11, listen to this story. It says, Jesus said to them, he says, suppose you have a friend. Now that already is depressing. It's like, like, I'll try. Okay. Suppose you have a friend and you check this out. You go to your friend at midnight and you say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have any food to offer him. Uber Eats isn't responding. Okay, verse 7. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. And you know how long it takes to get them in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Jesus says this. I love this. He says, I tell you. Even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, yet because of the man's shameless audacity, what a phrase, shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. It's not on the basis of your friendship that he's going to respond, but he's going to respond on the basis of your persistence. I'm knocking, and here's the principle here. If you knock, Jesus goes on to say, ask and it will be given to you. This is the Gospel of Luke. Seek and you find, and then Jesus says, knock and the door will be opened. This call to entreat God's favor. Rather than just expect that everything in life is an automatic door that I just walk in front of and everything opens up finally, there are points in life that we get to that God says, knock, come to me. Come to me. You can try to do this on your own, but it's not going to work out. You can try to kick the door down, but it's not going to work out. You're like Penny with the keys, trying to, you're scratching up the door. Instead, Be the persistent neighbor that comes to God. Now, what are we coming to God for? I was thinking about this and looking in the scriptures. When we talk about open doors, when we talk about knocking on heaven's door for some kind of a a favor, some kind of intervention, I think of two things specifically. The first thing is opportunity. Opportunity. You ever use that expression, God's really opened a door? You You ever had in your life God opened a door of opportunity that you're like, I could have never orchestrated that. The only way this happens is God opens the door. Can I tell you, our whole church planning process was just sitting back, seeking God, and watching him open doors that none of us could. Even still, like we're in that season, like God opened a door. He's like, hey, well, come to the Hyatt. I mean, it's awesome to to follow God in that way. And that's a a consistent theme that we see in Scripture. Just a couple examples of this. Um, 
once you throw up, I think Acts is the first one. Uh, yeah, here it is, Acts 14. It says, now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with him. And look at this testimony, and that God had opened a door of faith. See the opportunity there? To the Gentiles. Uh, the next one, I think, is 1 Corinthians. For a great, Paul says, for a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries, because open doors don't always mean smooth sailing. All right, next verse, Colossians. Meanwhile, Paul says, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, I, I want to point out a key, uh, a, a key similarity between all of these open doors. Each of these open doors that God has provided, these opportunities, they were all opportunities that weren't just for the individual, but they were for Christ. There's something to this. There's something to saying, God, open up doors of opportunity in my life, not for me, but for you. Help me use my job. Help me use where you've put me in my home. And God, open doors. God, would you open up a door for me to share the gospel with my neighbor? God, would you open up the door to share the gospel with my coworker? God, would you open up a door for the purposes of your kingdom? Jesus says, knock, and it'll be opened. There's nothing like a God-ordained opportunity. And especially when it's sought out by his children saying, God, open up a door. I love Revelation 3.7. It says this, when God opens a door, what he opens, no one can shut. Isn't that awesome? And what he shuts, no one can open. This speaks to the sovereignty of God. Um, that God, he's faithful. Can I say this? With closed doors. You ever just had a closed door? No matter how hard you're knocking, that thing's not opening. And sometimes what we learn is that no is because God had a better yes. So you didn't get into that school. You didn't end up moving where you wanted to. You didn't have that job as long as you thought. And God says, no, I'm closing that door because I got a better one. And also this promise, but remember, there's no closed door that I can't open. What an awesome truth. What he opens, no one can shut. There's something about this. I think a great example of this, I was thinking about this in the book of Acts. It's like early in the book of Acts when Peter and John are first thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And they're doing this horrible thing of healing people. You know, bringing the kingdom, making life better. I mean, God is using them. And it says that the high priest rose up. This is Acts 5, 17. Listen to this. And all those who were with the high priest, the sect of the, Faduce, uh, of the Sadducees, they were all filled with indignation and anger. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the you're not done. Get out of the prison, okay? Go preach. Go stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the world words of this life. It says that when they heard that, they entered the temple in the morning and they taught. But the high, this is so funny, but the high priest and those who with him, they came and called the council together with all the elders and children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out of the prison. Guess what? They showed up at the prison and when the officers that came in, they didn't find them. And they returned and reported and said, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards were even standing outside before the doors. Good phrase, right? But when we opened them, see, they thought they were the first one to open the doors, weren't they? When we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, I love this, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. It's like you can't stop what God wants to do. You could just sit back, hold on, and watch him be God. 
And I'll tell you what, what a life to live. Isn't that the way we want to live our lives? God, I'm just going to seek you, open up doors, and I'm going to enjoy you. And when, there, when there's a closed door, I'm going to knock, but I'm going to trust you. This is what Jesus promises, divine favor. Knock, and it will be open to you. And then lastly, this also speaks to outcome. Not just opportunity, but I just want to remind us. I want to remind us that... Um, Prayer is not a vain, frivolous, spiritual to-do. Like, it's not just something to fill time and fill the air. It's actually not just to commune with God, though that is primarily what we do in prayer. Like, Scripture calls us to pray believing that there's a reason behind it, that there's results from it. Now, a lot of times we lose heart. And Jesus talked about that. He talked about praying and not losing heart, but we might lose heart in our knocking because we've been praying for that certain outcome for so long and seen no results. We've been praying for the salvation of that person for so long and seen nothing. We start to lose heart, and we, I've heard today people like, well, you know, God is sovereign, so I just pray to connect with God. I don't really pray for any kind of result. God is sovereign over that. And can we be okay with both of those things being true? Like, can God be sovereign and still use our prayers? And here's the, the expression. It's James chapter 5. Look at James chapter 5. It says simply that confess your trespass to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So it's like prayer and healing are connected. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. I, listen, I haven't figured it all out yet. I'm trying here, okay? Not, not too close. I just know that God is sovereign, and I know that he calls me to pray. And I know that he promises that prayer has a purpose, that prayer changes things. There's something about it. So that person in your life that you have been persistently knocking on heaven's door for, keep knocking. Don't lose heart. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And I'm saying this not as someone that just has Bible convictions, but I'm saying this as someone who's standing before you as the product of his mom's prayers. I genuinely today, I still believe this. The reason why I'm walking with Jesus, I know Jesus, is because my mom knocked on the door of heaven when there was no reason in sight to knock. But she persisted, she trusted, and God heard her prayer. And it's just what God does. When you knock, he opens. He does the impossible. Amen? So, man, this is what Jesus promises about God. He promises that if we ask, we'll receive. He promises that if we seek, God's there to be found by us. And he promises that if we knock, that the door will be open. Doors of opportunity and outcome that we can never will our way through. And so the heart of this, as I invite the team to come up to close us in a song, the heart of this, again, is not just to theorize these truths, but it's to personalize them. So as we close in, in, in a moment here of, of, of singing a song, the goal here is that we would pray, God, would you take your word that you've spoken and sown in our hearts, and would you just plant it even deeper? And the way that that happens here, as God's word is almost like marinated in our hearts, is we think about how these truths apply to me. And in fact, Mike, can you throw up the ask and receive? There it is. You already got it going. What a great guy. All right. As we're worshiping, I want you to look at your life today and think to yourself, as we're worshiping here, what do I need from God? And am I asking? Am I working and achieving, or am I willing to ask and receive? What does my relationship with God become? Is it an active, living relationship? 
of seeking and finding, or has it become something else? Well, God, I want to seek you knowing that you'll be found by me. And lastly, what are some doors that you need to knock on heaven for, that you need to commit, recommit yourself to praying for? Let's stand together, and in light of these three promises, let's bring them before the Lord and ask him to download them as deep as possible to our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you for your promises. Because, God, there's so much in life that's so uncertain. Sometimes we don't even, like, we don't even know how to trust ourselves. It's just a life of so much disappointment, a life of, of uncertainty and change. And so, God, to have you and to have your promises, it means everything. To know that you don't change. To know that this is who you are despite what's going on. So we ask, Lord, that you would make these truths deeply true to us. That you would give us faith to trust you. And even now in this moment as we worship you, we pray you'd produce that greater faith.